Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. If you've joined me before, welcome back. If this is your first time here, welcome. At the Logical Christian Podcast, we look at what's going on in the world of current events, politics, science, and whatever the mainstream media feels is important to tell us, but rather than just accepting their spin and swallowing their narrative, we look at it logically, and we look at it as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you want to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. There's a series of memes and short videos, think TikTok, that have been around for a while that start off with, how old were you when... And then they give some crazy fact about how something you've been using your whole life was actually meant to be used differently, and it just blows your mind. For instance, how old were you when you learned that the hole at the end of the handle of your pot was meant to put your wooden spoon in so you didn't have to lay your messy spoon down somewhere? Now, ignoring those types of quirky factoids, as we age, we kind of assume that there are some things that we no longer need to learn about because we done learned it all we can learn about it. Turns out that may not be the case. On today's episode, we're going to relearn the value of life, then we're going to relearn what we thought we knew about sex, and finally we're going to relearn how the economy works. So get your cyanide capsule, and get ready to edit that Tinder profile, and put a fresh battery in your calculator, because new school is in session. Here we go. Do you remember when you were young, usually very young, but doesn't necessarily have to be, and you had that thing that you could not live without? For me, it was my bobber. That's what I called my pacifier. That's probably the earliest thing that had great value and worth to me. I really only remember it from pictures and stories that were told to me, but basically, this was kind of my blankie. One day, when I was sick, apparently the cat got a hold of it and ruined it, and since I was sick, my mom couldn't go right out and get me another one, and my precious, my precious was gone. After decades of counseling, I've finally been able to come to terms. No, that's that's a joke. I'm theoretically perfectly stable and not at all psychologically traumatized by that. For my daughter, it was her ducky. That's what she called her blanket, because it used to have ducks all over it. Used to. It was made for her while she was still cooking by her uncle's mother, and she took it everywhere. I mean, I mean everywhere. In fact, there was one long drive, about 16 hours total, that we were an hour into to be gone for the week, and we realized we forgot it. We literally turned back and got it. That was a long day. Now, my mother has repaired it and remade it over and over again. Very little of it is the original, although she's always tried to retain as much as she could of the original. My daughter still has it. She doesn't carry it with her everywhere, or really, really anywhere anymore. She'll still sleep with it, but the value she's placed on it has dropped to a lesser value. I would imagine that if something were to happen to it today, she'd probably be upset. Give her another 10 years, and it would probably be an unfortunate thing if something were to happen to it. And as time goes on, the value decreases because our worldview increases. Now, that ducky will never be nothing, but it won't be a snot-flowing, wailing, inconsolable mourning type of thing, like when she was little. It seems like that's kind of the way of life, right? But should that be the worldview of life? Found on the Guardian.com headline, Are Canadians Being Driven to Assisted Suicide by Poverty or Healthcare Crisis? The byline is, Critics argue laws are being misused to punish the poor, but experts say cases represent countries' failure to care for its most vulnerable citizens. 
So as a little background, we're talking about people being able to make the decision to end their lives with the assistance of medical professionals, in one way or another, based on whatever criteria has been legalized in their country or state. There appears to be two methods to accomplish this, physician-assisted suicide or euthanasia. The difference is basically who does the work. With euthanasia, the medical professional oversees the administration of the lethal cocktail of drugs. With physician-assisted suicide, the medical professional prescribes the lethal dose, but the individual must initiate the administration. Currently, there are a handful of countries that have legalized both forms, a few more that have legalized one form, and a few that have specific locations within the country where one or both is legalized. I don't believe that this is an exhaustive list, but countries where both are legal are Albania, Belgium, Canada, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, and Spain. Countries that have legalized physician-assisted suicide are Austria, Finland, Germany, New Zealand, and Switzerland. From my very quick search, I found that Colombia has only legalized euthanasia. And then you have Victoria, Australia as the only location in Australia that's legalized euthanasia. And finally, the states of Vermont, New Mexico, Oregon, Washington, and Montana are the only states in the U.S. where physician-assisted suicide is legal. Obviously, this is a hot political topic, and it has been for many years. If you're old like me, you likely remember Dr. Jack Kevorkian. That name probably brings back some memories. Back in 1990, he helped his first patient, customer, not sure, uh, commit suicide. This was a 54-year-old woman who had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's a year prior. They tried to charge him with murder, but there weren't any laws on the books to charge him with breaking. From 1990 to 1998, he allegedly assisted with 130 deaths, either by a lethal injection or a carbon monoxide gas. The claim is that he only hooked them up to the respective machine, but they made the decision and took the action to end their own life. A part of the controversy was not that he was helping people commit suicide, although that was controversial at the time, but that a majority of his patients weren't terminally ill. They weren't properly counseled. They weren't in chronic pain. They just wanted to be done. And he obliged them. Four times he was tried for murder. They failed to make the case three times, and the other ended in a mistrial. At the time, this was unbelievable. A person, a doctor, would literally be helping someone to die? Today, however, much like our blankie or favorite stuffed animal or our bobber when we were little, the value that's placed on human life has dropped. And we almost seem bored with this human existence. We're willing to come up with any excuse to use it, abuse it, destroy it, and kill it. What does it matter anyway? Back to the article. In the article, they highlight two women, both of whom suffered from something called multiple chemical sensitivity, which means various common chemicals can trigger nausea, terrible headaches, and potentially severe allergic reactions, including anaphylactic shock. In both cases, the women lived off of government disability, receiving a monthly amount, placing them well into the poverty level. In both cases, the women argued that if they had better specialized housing with better ventilation controls, it could alleviate some of the problems by reducing the triggers. The first woman, Sophia, a 51-year-old from Ontario, was granted physician-assisted death because of her chronic condition. She made the statement that, quote, The government sees me as expendable trash, a complainer, useless, and a pain in the ass. 
The second woman, Denise, age not given in the article, is in the process of applying for the right to end her life. So the question is being raised, is the government, the medical establishments, allowing them to kill themselves because they're poor in addition to having these health issues? Although inadequate housing and level of economic status isn't a factor in the determination, some are questioning if maybe it actually kind of might be. Chantal Perrault, a physician and medical assistance in death provider or maid provider, said that what those ladies deal with makes it, quote, pretty much impossible to do in ordinary life. So better housing can create a temporary bubble for a person, but there's no cure for this. Oh, wow. She went on to say, quote, We do this work because we believe in people's right to an assisted death. It's not always easy to do, but we know that patients need it and value it. We live with the challenge of the work, in part because it is important to alleviate that suffering. Oh, okay. Canada introduced legislation in 2016, which of course caused a lot of concern about doctors having to violate their oath of do no harm and their pledge to protect people in order to perform the service. In fact, in 2021, lawmakers had to revise the law because it was ruled unconstitutional. (laughs) No, not because it's helping people kill themselves. No, because it excluded people with physical disabilities. And currently, a special joint parliamentary committee is back debating this law again. No, not because it helps people kill themselves. They want to decide if they should expand access to, quote, consenting children and those with mental illness. Now, you may think, where does it end? Well, you're silly. That's what silly people thought all the way back in 2016. But Hillary Ferguson, a bioethicist at Dalhousie University in Nova Scotia, has pointed out that, quote, many of the slippery slope arguments that were made initially never happened. There were fears that the floodgates would open and all these people would be accessing made or even forced upon them. But that's not been the case. Oh, well, I mean, if that's not been the case for an entire six years, two of which have been in lockdown for the most part, especially in Canada, I guess arguing the slippery slope is stupid. I mean, if it doesn't happen right away, it'll never, ever happen in a billion years. Hashtag scientific fact. Another Dalhousian, Jocelyn Downey, a professor of law and an expert in end-of-life policy, said, quote, You have to meet rigorous eligibility criteria, and being poor and not having a home or a home that is suitable for you does not make you eligible. Those, I guess, are part of the very extensive guardrails in place, apparently. You know, on your road to killing yourself. And just because you have chronic issues, it doesn't mean you can just die. There are experts working to try to deal with your issue in any way possible. You know, first, and and then you can apply to kill yourself. So look, we could argue back and forth about chronic pain, terminal illness, etc. But the bottom line is that life is precious. What's missing in all of this is uh, maybe biblical counseling. I won't say exclusively, but I'm comfortable saying almost exclusively the people that are choosing to kill themselves are not saved. For those that are not born again, saved Christians, this life, as hard as it may be or may have been, will literally be the best part of eternity for them. So rather than condone and be complicit in murder and make no mistake, someone killing themselves is murder and then sending them to hell, wouldn't it be better to send them, I don't know, as part of the slate of experts trying to help? to some sort of biblical-based counseling? These people have lost hope. 
The body may be failing, their life may be unbelievably difficult, but more than anything, they've lost hope. And they have no hope because they have nothing to hope in. If your hope is in yourself or your doctors or a good life, all that can be gone in an instant. In order to have true hope, you must have something concrete to hope for and in. This comes back to faith, and the only faith that doesn't put the burden back on your shoulders to try harder, to do more, to complete these works, and maybe, maybe if the god or goddess or gods are in a charitable mood when you die, you might make it to whatever passes for utopia or eternal bliss or whatever. If people without hope were told things like the creation account, how God commanded everything to be until he got to man and woman, at which point he slowed down and personally formed and created and breathed life into them. Could that make a difference in a person's life? Maybe. What if they were told, as we find in Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you? Now, I know that verse goes on to apply specifically to Jeremiah the prophet, but that first part applies to all of us, right? What if we told them as found in Ephesians, for we are his workmanship? Now, the rest may not apply to them. The rest may never apply to them if they're not saved, but the first part definitely does, and we can work on the rest. What if they were told the story of Job, not as some myth, but an actual historical account? We don't know what's going on behind the scenes of this person's life, but we see that Job was loved by God, even though at the time it probably didn't feel like it. And what about our value to God? What if we were told, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows, as we hear Jesus say in the book of Luke. What if instead of saying, well, we'll try, but there's really no cure for that, but we'll try what we can, we showed them while trying to intervene medically that they're loved by God, that their life is precious. But as I started this review, human life has become kind of boring, kind of blah. And if things don't go right, if things aren't what we expected, then why be here? The evolutionary worldview plays into this. If we're just evolved slime, like we're all taught, then who cares what happens? If once we die, the lights just go out, well, what would I care then? It's only a human life. We've got a lot of those walking around. The slippery slope is coming. You can already see it. First, include the physically disabled. Now we're looking into including children and mentally disabled. How far behind really are those that are poor? Addicts. Criminals? Depressed? How about grieving? Those are distraught. We just found out via a recent update to the DSM-5, that's the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, version 5, basically the handbook for all mental and psychological disorders, that if you grieve the loss of someone for more than a year, it's a psychological disorder. How long before extended grief can be cured with a little uh, physician's assistance? How long before it's not our choice? Well, you have a terminal illness, less than a 50% chance of living. You can either suffer and see what happens, as we don't really have the resources to help you, or we can just take care of it right here. How long before the option to suffer is gone? These are not unreasonable questions. Assisted suicide, well, heck, suicide of any type, makes perfectly logical sense in a world that has cast aside their creator and his word. You know, the true truth. A world with no God, no higher purpose, no answers to the biggest questions of life offers no hope, no reason to stick around. But except for what still appears to be a minority of people, although it's getting closer to 50-50, life still has value. Even to those who are unsaved, life, for some reason, has value. Unsaved parents who lose a child mourn that child. Friends mourn that child. That life was precious, and they know this is true, even if they don't consciously know why. So, Christian... This is why we need to get away from and starve out churches that preach health and wealth, 
who hold a TED Talk every Sunday, who do silly games and absolutely stupid sermon series, who twist the scriptures to emotionally manipulate people just to hook them into coming the next week, you know, like a drug pusher. This is why we need to exude hope, to live hope, to be able to show people and tell people where our hope comes from. The understanding that life is precious will be followed by why it's precious and will necessarily need a more complete biblical answer as to what's really happening as time goes on. The world is getting darker and more callous, more dismissive of the important, more embracing of the pointless. We need to continue to be that salty salt of the earth, that shining city on a hill. We need to be a beacon that leads people to the one their faith can be put in and their hope can come from. The gay queer man ejaculated in the middle of the intersection while everyone looked on in wonder. Now you're wondering what in the world is wrong with me, right? Well, if you'd get your mind out of the gutter, or at least out of the late 20th and the 21st century, you'd know that what I said was actually the happy odd man exclaimed loudly in the middle of the intersection while everyone looked on in wonder. See, over time, words change meaning. Sometimes they change meaning completely. Sometimes they turn into slang. The words gay, queer, and ejaculate used to mean other things, and now they mean different things. The changing of definitions of words can cause a real problem if you lose the context, resulting in uh, drastically wrong interpretations. For instance, Genesis 1.28, when you read it in, say, the English Standard Version, the ESV, that's my current translation of choice, it says, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. When you read it in the King James Version, the KJV, you read, And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth. We read the word replenish today as fill again. But replenish at the time the KJV was written simply meant to fill. But because some people like to ignore the context, they want to try to shove evolution in there, saying that there was obviously some other species or race or whatever prior to what eventually evolved into Adam and Eve, and that's when God breathed into them his breath of life, giving them souls, etc., etc. It's a stupid theory, all because they refuse to understand the definition and the context. And that brings us to our article from the BBC.com headline, The Invention of Heterosexuality. And let me point out that the word heterosexuality is in quotes, and you'll understand why in just a moment. Now, this article is from 2017, but it popped up in, uh, I don't know, some feed that I worked my way through. I tossed it into my pile O articles to take a look at later and decide if it would be worth bringing to all of you. And by the third paragraph, I was like, yeah, you're going to want to hear this. So the author of this article, we'll call him Brandon Ambrosino because that's his name, he makes the claim that, quote, 100 years ago, people had a very different idea of what it means to be heterosexual. Understanding that shift in thinking can tell us a lot about fluid sexual identities today. So the article starts by telling us the definition of the word heterosexuality from two dictionaries in the early 1900s, both of which defined it basically as an abnormal or perverted sexual passion for the opposite sex. By 1934, the definition had shifted to basically what we have today, a sexual passion for the opposite sex, or also 
normal sexuality, or as we call it today, being straight, which in itself is a slang definition for a word that has a different meaning. Mr. Ambrosino comments that when he tells people of the old definitions, they're shocked. And why? Because it just feels like heterosexuality has always been what we think of it as. He then cites a video from a few years prior to the article, a man-on-the-street type of video, where people were asked if they thought homosexuals were born that way or not. Of course, as expected, a variety of responses were given, to which the video creator then drops the gotcha hammer, quote, when did you choose to be straight? <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Apparently, quote, most were taken back, confessing, rather sheepishly, never to have thought about it. Feeling that their prejudices had been exposed, they ended up swiftly conceding the videographer's obvious point. Gay people were born gay just like straight people were born straight. Now, the video creator argues the point that both hetero and homosexuality have always just been there. The author of the article, however, argues that more work needs to be done to understand this, which he's willing to undertake for our benefit, I guess. He argues that homosexuality came into existence at a certain point, but so did heterosexuality. He says that we don't talk about it because many reasons, including, quote, religious bias and other types of homophobia. It, I just kind of love how he automatically classifies religion as homophobic. He then goes on to say, quote, the biggest reason we don't interrogate heterosexuality's origins is probably because it seems so, well, natural, normal. No need to question something that's just there. But heterosexuality has not always just been there. And there's no reason to imagine... It always will be. I'll be honest. I'm not going to go deep into this article. You know the drill. The link is in the notes. You can check it out if you'd like. But he goes on to explain that, uh, sure, quote, different genital intercourse. Now, how much of a turnout would that be for a pair of newlyweds to discuss on the wedding night, huh? He says that's been around forever. You know, if it wasn't, no more people because no more babies as the other options yeah, those don't produce babies. They produce some bouncing baby STDs, but no babies. So as he and some queer theorists and others that he quotes argue, sex has always been there as just an animal instinct. But sexuality is nothing but a construct of society, and heterosexuality is nothing but one of those constructs. The author then goes on to use a number of red herrings, which is it's a type of logical fallacy that shifts focus away from the actual topic to something else that has very little, if anything, to do with the topic in order to try and prove a false conclusion. For instance, he cites an author that speaks of a certain type of fish that always was, but was only discovered 10 years earlier. So see, sexuality always was. It it just wasn't known, so, you know, same as the fish. He also cites a book from the 19th century where a number of perversions were discussed, but the term heterosexuality wasn't used very often as the author of the book considered it to be sexual instinct and normal. The author of the article says slavery used to be normal too. So, see? 
He then works his way through the Stoics, who felt that the only use for sex was procreation. It then moves into an erotic kind of act that doesn't necessarily have to be for procreation, and then into the rise of the middle class and the growing large cities. Apparently, the lower class rabble would bring their degenerate sexual practices into the city, and so the middle and upper classes needed to distinguish themselves from that poor filth, so no sexual deviancy for them, straight up heterosexuality. So anyway, let's hit his conclusion quick here. The future of heterosexuality. His conclusion is along the lines of what you'd expect. If sexuality is an invented construct, then why can't we invent whatever we want? Why can't sexuality be fluid? Why can't we be what or who we want at different times in our lives? In fact, all sexualities are essentially the same and completely interchangeable. We're just in control of that. And since all sexual identities are the same, then we can't judge someone's animal nature as being natural and ethical or not. Okay, so this is what happens when we disconnect from the true truth. Although the bulk of this article was to speak about how sexuality is a construct, I'd actually have to argue that the man on the street video creator all the way back at the beginning had it most close to right. Both hetero and homosexuality have, for all intents and purposes, always been. We know that heterosexuality, as we understand the term, and frankly, I don't care how dictionaries or various cult movements have defined it in the past, as illustrated by my somewhat shocking lead-in sentence, we know it was created by God himself back at the very beginning when he made woman for man and told them to go fill up the earth. This union is reiterated many times throughout the Bible speaking of marriage, always a man and a woman, never the same sex. Furthermore, there are rules and guidelines regarding marriage throughout the Bible, all pertaining to a union between a man and a woman. You will never see a blessed same-sex union or rules or guidelines for how to live in a same-sex situation in the Bible. However, the same cannot be said for a homosexual relationship. There's no way to know when this practice first started. My guess would be probably in the pre-flood world, but that would be pure speculation since we have no record of that, only that men were evil in every thought they had. We also don't know what exactly happened between Noah and Ham after the flood when Ham saw the nakedness of his father. Based on Noah cursing Ham because of what he had done to him, something happened. It could have been a perverse act. It could have been a perverse thought. It could have just been simply him enjoying his father in a lowly, weakened, undignified position, and then thinking his brothers would enjoy mocking their father as well. We don't really know. So again, all there can be is just pure speculation. So the first implication of homosexuality is in Genesis 19 with the town of Sodom. Although it's not stated outright, it's clear that the men of the town wanted to rape the new visitors that came to the town. This is implied by Lot telling them to not do this wickedness. That clearly shows that when they said they wanted to know these strangers, they weren't talking about going and having a cup of coffee. It's further clarified when Lot tries to offer the mob his two virgin daughters, why mention their virginity unless this was a sexually crazed mob? Side note, I can't even imagine the type of person, man, or father you'd have to be to offer your children, your, your daughters, to a mob. I, it's, I digress. Then the wickedness of both Sodom and Gomorrah was punished with utter destruction. Every living thing was destroyed, all vegetation completely wiped out. Then we get into the Mosaic Law, which clearly describes what is and isn't acceptable. The male-female marriage union is acceptable. And that's it. 
nothing else. Specifically discussing homosexuality, we find Leviticus 18.22 says, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. That seems fairly clear. But moving forward a couple chapters to Leviticus 20, verse 13, if a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. So again, an abomination, this time with a penalty, the penalty being death. Now for Christians, we no longer hold to capital punishment for homosexuality, but the New Testament still clearly maintains homosexuality as a sin. Romans 1, 26-27 says that for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. 1 Corinthians 1, 9-10 says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Paul bookends this list with will not inherit the kingdom of God. Clearly he wanted that to be perfectly understood. Then 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 10 says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Now, the Bible does not shy away from the distinction between heterosexual and homosexual sexuality. It is also very clear everywhere it's mentioned that one is ordained by God, the other is a sinful abomination. Of course, you get some that say that Jesus never said anything about it, so we don't have to worry about it, to which I'd say hogwash. In Matthew 19, Jesus said, And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Every time Jesus talks about marriage or sexuality, it's always a male-female relationship. And let's not forget that the Trinity is one in essence, three in person. And if the scriptures are all God-breathed through the Holy Spirit's inspiration to the writers, then how could you have disagreement within the three-in-one Godhead as to the sinfulness of homosexuality? This would set up a paradox that would render God no longer God, and then everything, poof, gone. Now think about five years ago, 2017. This was when this article was written. Were we talking about men using women's bathrooms if they feel like a woman? Was the transgender craze being forced on everyone, especially our kids? Were men able to have babies? How many pronouns were there in 2017 versus today? In fact, at this point, you will be accepted as anything you say you are, going well beyond sexuality, but that absolutely plays a role in it as well. The author was absolutely wrong and absolutely right. 
Heterosexuality has always existed, and homosexuality likely came into practice not long after the fall, so the author was wrong. These are not fairly recent societal norms that have been just decided on. His attempt to prove his point with old yet somewhat recent dictionaries and a series of red herrings don't help him prove his point. But he was absolutely right in his conclusion. The result is a fluid sexuality. Be whoever you want to be whenever you want to be it. We have accepted that as a society hook, line, and sinker. So as Christians, we live in a world that's hostile to the biblical point of view. I don't believe that we should be hateful. I don't believe we should be walking around our workplace condemning people to hell. I don't believe in snarky bumper stickers. But I do believe we should maintain our beliefs, not compromise what we know to be true. Admittedly, this can be difficult, and I personally believe some discernment should be used as to where and when you engage in battle. Beating someone down by being right will not necessarily win them over. It's possible you do the opposite. So my advice, and and this is what I try to do, know what you believe and why. That's the key. And then be prudent as to how you approach these kinds of topics. Initiate where it makes sense. Engage where it makes sense. Walk away where it makes sense. We don't want to be affirming in this sinful lifestyle, but we can be nice while standing firm in our beliefs. And above all, whether you're currently thinking of situations you're already dealing with or just assuming your turn will come eventually, pray for guidance in dealing with the situation. Pray for openness of heart and eyes of the person you're dealing with. And pray for massive levels of discernment. I don't think I have to tell you, for if you're listening to this podcast, you are clearly the smartest of the smart. The smart elite. The 1% smarties. The ultra smart? Something like that. So you and I both know that the economy, although admittedly not perfectly spit-shined with a bow, is just roaring back. You can feel it. Rawr. Basically, full employment, only 3.6% unemployment, which is, from a labor perspective, full employment, part-time and low-skilled wage workers, as well as other large companies signaling their virtue are, are boosting their wages way up. I think we all know that higher gas and diesel prices are a good thing because it shows that the demand is outweighing the supply. And why? Because industry is booming. People are driving into work, flying all over the country and world. Trucks and ships are practically forcing stores to take their products. But the stores just don't have the shelf space. Look at Shanghai, the ports, all the ships that are backed up there, all because there's nowhere to put all of the goods and nothing more. That said, the uh, one sticky wicket, and it hardly bears even mentioning, is the, uh, the slight inflation Bump, the nudge, if you will, the blip on the radar. There are some that want to make a big deal out of this, but it's not a big deal. I mean, it's not even real. I mean, it is, but it's it's just transitory, just passing through like an old friend that happened to be coming through town and asked to grab a cup of coffee and just catch up a bit. Well, I mean, not passing through, but in effect, that hypothetical friend decided to stay for a while, but it's it's literally, yes, literally a good thing. Why? Well, quite simply, a nice hearty inflation makes things do stuff and stuff. And how many of us like it when it does that? Am I right? And anyway, and if, if, is a huge if, if it were to do anything bad, it's definitely Trump's fault and all his darned Republicans, plus Putin and capitalism, plus the oil companies that openly refuse to just make the gas, plus big corporations that refuse to eat 
the rising costs of manufacturing and just expect you and I to pay more for less simply because they're paying more for less. In fact, and this will sound like I shoehorned this in here because I did, as this just came through prior to me recording, Biden just tweeted out that if we wanted inflation to come down, it'll take the, quote, wealthiest corporations paying their fair share. So yeah, the, the good inflation is good for reasons. The bad inflation is bad because of Republicans and capitalism and greedy companies. But because some of you are whining, oh, I can't afford to drive, I can't afford to feed my family, inflation is outpacing wages by at least triple, if not more, so we're all getting a lot poorer. I hear it all the time. I can't find the products I desperately need. <laughs> blah 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 Well, there is a solution, and it's so simple. From Yahoo Finance, headline, Why the Fed Wants Corporate America to Have a Hiring Freeze, colon, Morning Brief. Now, I don't know why we care if this guy wears morning briefs or morning boxers, but we'll move on from that. So the gist is pretty simple. You know how our unemployment rate is at 3.6% and how Biden has been promoting his booming economy and definitely newly created jobs, not just people coming back to work after being told to stay home for months and years, and, and how wages are increasing because finally people can work a part-time McDonald's job and have a solid annual salary because for most people, that's exactly what a job at McDonald's is for. Well, all of that is going to kind of need to stop. Yeah, it's, it's kind of screwing things up. Who knew? So apparently there is a, quote, chorus of those wanting a weaker labor market that is getting louder and louder. In fact, Bank of America is, quote, rooting against the home team on this one. Apparently, the Fed chair, Jerome Powell, is kind of uh, code-talking uh, to corporate America, signaling, quote, his goal to have companies essentially institute a hiring freeze and end the cycle of paying up for new hires. So says Nicholas Colas, the co-founder of Datatrack. Yep, I guess Powell wants to use the power of the Fed, which on a side note, should be eliminated from our country, in my opinion, as they've never done anything productive, they're only destructive. He wants to kind of hammer corporations into putting a freeze on hiring and drop from 11.5 million job openings to at least 8 million or less. You know, for normalcy. And how is he going to hammer them? Well, by slamming the stock market. See, if he keeps raising interest rates, it's going to continue to spook the market, and that'll shake consumer confidence, and I guess make corporations stop doing things. I don't, look, I'm not a Fed whiz kid like 69-year-old Jerome Powell, so admittedly, I don't know how all this works. But the bottom line is that what we definitely want, what Powell definitely wants, is a recession. And the corporations can decide uh, if they want a big one or a mild one. So, I mean, that's, that's great. Who can't wait for a nice recession following inflation? I sure hope a solid lingering depression is next, huh? Okay, the reality is, the leftist monetary and economic policies and theories have never worked. Their theories on higher taxes consistently bring in lower revenue than the theory of using lower taxes. Their theory of government handouts, you know, welfare in massive ways, only hurts the country and the population, where the alternative of working to get people off of welfare programs does nothing but good for everyone. Their theory of a living wage, the $15 per hour, for now, well, the right tried to warn them, anyone with half a brain tried to warn them that that kind of forced increase will lead nowhere good, but they knew better, 
A good chunk of companies and states that have mandated this have already backed off of this because it's unrealistic. But now, because of all the stimmy checks and extended unemployment, the disruption of the pandemic, people are being more selective about where they work and for how much. And this has companies raising wages, raising incentives and benefits. In some cases, it has workers getting paid the same day as they work. And these aren't day laborers. These are supposed to be employees. Now, I make fun, but Powell is essentially right, at least from my understanding of how the system works. The main problem here is that we have too much money in the system. The printing presses are red hot trying to crank out all the money we're printing with nothing to back it up. So the value of the dollar is plunging. The only way to right the ship to any degree is to suck a lot of that cash back into the Fed so they can burn it and remove it from circulation. That makes less dollars chasing the same goods backed in theory by the same assets, although that's a fantasy in itself, which raises the value, theoretically, of each dollar. The only way to get that cash back to the Fed is to raise interest rates. That's the cost of money that eventually finds its way back to the central bank for destruction. And that's what Powell is doing. The problem is, he'll never be able to raise interest rates high enough, at least not for a recovery in a time frame that'll actually stop us from destruction. He'd have to raise interest rates in excess of 100% in order to do that. Rates hitting 2% or 2.5%, it's just not going to cut it. The reality is, there aren't any more levers to pull. I mean, think about it. When is the last time you heard our government saying that our economy is too strong, that the unemployment rate is too low, that the job market is too hot? I mean, that's insanity, right? As for unemployment, the reality is we're not at 3.6%. I mean, according to how the figure is calculated today, we're at 3.6%, but that's simply a smoke and mirrors job too. If you go to the link in the notes for shadow stats, you can see their unemployment numbers. There are three numbers, basically. There's what's reported, which is the 3.6%. There's the Bureau of Labor Statistics numbers that includes the short-term so-called discouraged workers, those that have basically given up looking for a short period of time. That number is about 65 to 7%. And then there's the shadow stats number. See, the long-term discouraged workers, those that have pretty much just given up trying to find a job for whatever reason, like for massively extended unemployment or maybe people living off of stimulus checks or people that decided it was pretty sweet to just live off the government handouts. Those types of people were just phased out of the official number in 1994. The shadow stats number puts them back in there. So the real unemployment rate is just shy of 25%. Yeah, about 25% of able-bodied workers aren't. They aren't working. And if you look at the difference between the numbers, at least 21% of potential workers have just tapped out. Now, to be fair, this isn't all Biden. This has been a cumulative effect over many years. The most recent step change was around 2010, when the number stabilized at about 23%. From 2010 to 2020, the number came down to about 21% from its crest in about 2015 of the 23%. In that same decade, the officially reported number steadily declined from about 10% to 4% and then spiked when the pandemic hit. The Bureau of Labor Statistics number followed the same kind of decline, moving from about 17% to about 7.5%. Based on the curves, more people were moved off the short-term and placed on the long-term 
discouraged workers, but even that was coming down, meaning more people were re-entering the workforce because they either saw a benefit to doing so or they were being made uncomfortable in their sluggardly ways because of something and then the pandemic. And while we're in shadow stats, we can see what inflation is really doing because do you feel like you're only paying 8% more for stuff? Yeah, well, if we calculated it based on the same criteria as in 1980, you know, when we were dealing with terrible inflation, we would be sitting at about 17%, about 2% greater than the end of the so, so wonderful Jimmy Carter era. Does it feel like you're paying 8% or 17% more? I know how it feels to me. And that brings us to the money supply. Admittedly, I don't understand these charts as well, but what is clearly seen is that from 2020 to today, no matter who's doing the calculations, the supply has shot straight to the moon. The economy is being flooded with dollar bills. Too many dollars chasing too few goods. Too many dollars being backed by the same theoretical assets. And that, my friends, ain't good. And this is what Jerome Powell rightly knows needs to be curbed. Which is odd because as we all know, printing money doesn't cause inflation. Or it does, but maybe not. Just look that up. Ask your digital assistant of choice, your favorite definitely not spying on you search engine, if printing money causes inflation. You get two answers. One is yes, the other is predictably no. The problem is that yes is based on solid economic principles. The no is based on a political agenda Fantasy, and I think the blackest of magic, the darkest of the dark arts, if you will. And now, after Biden recently and repeatedly mumbled his way through, I guess, what passes as another speech of some sort, telling us that he's the most job-creatingest president in all the land, the most jobs freshly conjured from thin air, and definitely not people going back to work after a quasi-pandemic unjustifiable lockdown, we get a tweet that promptly had to be corrected from the White House saying that when Biden took office, there were millions unemployed and no vaccine. Which, um, whatever gender-confused intern they've got clacking these long, fake, talon-like nails on the keyboard, he, she, it is obviously detached from reality. But I repeat myself. It goes on to say that in the last 15 months, the economy has created 8.3 million jobs. I mean, way to go, Joe. But we need to go ahead and stop doing that now, you know, to stop inflation. Inflation that's definitely not there. Or if it is, it's good or bad, but definitely good. Oh, and for good measure, there's one more possible solution. I mean, not, not for inflation, but to help us, you know, the little people during this period of bad, good inflation. Per Representative Katie Porter of California, this is why we desperately need abortion up to birth. We need to be able to control how many mouths to feed. We need to be able to make our own decisions about starting a family. And we all know that having unbridled, well, or bridled if that's your thing, unrestrained, or eh, monkey-like sex is a given. We're all going to make sweet, wild animal love with each other all the time, and we all know that protection barely works and it just slows down the sweet, sweet it on getting, so why use it at all? And sometimes old, well, I don't remember, what's his face? You'll think of his name later. Maybe he puts a clump of cells in your body and you just need to flush that out sometime in the next nine months or so. You know, you're busy. Sometimes you forget you've got that nondescript fetal material in there. You'll get around to it. 
Now, personally, I'd like to expand on Katie's very obvious and common sense solution. What happens if a dad of three married to a, a lazy, obviously socially backward or oppressed by toxic masculinity, stay-at-home mom who contributes nothing of importance, you know, cash money, what happens if he loses his job? Well, maybe he needs to have less mouths to feed. Come here, kids, let me teach you how to draw straws. <laughs> and listen, what is grandma contributing? Nothing. That's right. But she eats, doesn't she? Well, maybe just, uh, maybe just stop that. Just think, if we just had the ability to eliminate some of these useless eaters, which are really nothing but post-birth cell clumps, just think of how much food would be back on the grocery aisle shelves and how much of that virtually worthless cash you could have in your pocket. <laughs> I kid. But seriously, I'm not kidding at all. If you don't think that's what's coming, you're a fool. Around 1930, and it was hard to find an exact date, but it's around there, and there's readily available video you can look up if you want, George Bernard Shaw said, quote, I object to all punishment whatsoever. I don't want to punish anybody, but there are an extraordinary number of people who I want to kill, not in any unkind or personal spirit, but it must be evident to all of you. You, you must all know half a dozen people, at least, who are of no use in this world, who are more trouble than they're worth. And I think it will be a good thing to make everybody come before a properly appointed board, just as he might come before the income tax commissioners and say, every five years or every seven years, just put them there and say, sir or madam, now will you be kind enough to justify your existence? If you can't justify your existence, if you're not pulling your weight in the social boat, if you're not producing as much as you consume or perhaps a little more, then clearly we cannot use the big organization of our society for the purpose of keeping you alive because your life does not benefit us and it can't be of very much use to yourself. In fact, as shocking as that might be to some of you, you may have never heard that before, this sentiment has been around for a long time. Charles Dickens, in his 1843 classic, A Christmas Carol, shows this theory at its contemporary state. Now, I'm sure we could probably find this theory earlier in history, but the idea of reducing the net takers was popularized by 18th century economist Thomas Malthus. We have a scene in A Christmas Carol where Dickens ties the evil of the Malthusian theory to the evil character of Scrooge. We see two men come into Scrooge's bank or counting house asking for donations for the poor before the Christmas season, to which, and you can probably almost quote this with me, the following exchange takes place. Scrooge asks, are there no prisons? Plenty of prisons. And the union workhouses, are they still in operation? They are still. I wish I could say they were not. The treadmill and the poor law are in full vigor then? Both very busy, sir. Oh, I was afraid from what you said at first that something had occurred to stop them in their useful course. I'm very glad to hear it. They then point out that these options aren't really good options and not getting the hint, they ask how much he'd like to donate. And we pick it up there. Nothing. You wish to be anonymous? I wish to be left alone. Since you asked me what I wish, gentlemen, that is my answer. I don't make merry myself at Christmas, and I can't afford to make idle people merry. I help to support the establishments I have mentioned. They cost enough, and those who are badly off must go there. Many can't go there, and many would rather die. To which Scrooge replies, If they would rather die, they had better do it, and decrease the surplus population. Same thought, same intent as George Bernard Shaw the net takers should just be uh, gone. Well, Dan, you might say, that was then. We're much more enlightened now. Eh, yeah, but Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel said back in 2014 and has reiterated this many times, 
that he feels we should all die by the age of 75, max. Uh, he's not advocating for murder or euthanasia, <laughs> yet. Just no more medical anything at 75. And if you die, you die. His justification is that by the age of 75, you're pretty much useless. Comes down to math. Is your consumption worth our contribution? Almost seems like the same thing Shaw, Scrooge, and Malthus were saying. Don't worry, though. He's just one random guy. However, when we look at his career, looking at Wikipedia, and, and this is correct, we find, quote, after completing his postdoctoral training, Emmanuel pursued a career in academic medicine, rising to the level of associate professor at Harvard Medical School in 1997. He soon moved into the public sector and held the position of chief of the Department of Bioethics at the Clinical Center of the U.S. National Institutes of Health. Emanuel served as special advisor for health policy to Peter Orzag, the former director of the Office of Management and Budget in the Obama administration. Emanuel entered the administration with different views from President Barack Obama on how to reform health care, but was said by colleagues to be working for the White House goals. Now let me break in here. His goals were called the Complete Live System, where we all run on a usefulness arch. Babies, elderly, the disabled, they get less resources, you know, like medical care, because their usefulness, their contribution is little to nothing. But once you get past a certain age, more resources can be given to you since you either are contributing or you have the potential to contribute more to society. It's, it's very nice. Continuing with the article, quote, Since September 2011, Emanuel has headed the Department of Medical Ethics and Health Policy at the University of Pennsylvania, where he also serves as a Penn Integrates Knowledge Professor under the official title Diane S. Levy and Robert M. Levy University Professor. Ugh. On November 9th, President-elect Joe Biden named Emanuel to be one of the 16 members of his Coronavirus Advisory Board. So, bioethics... Uh, and a chief architect of Obamacare, and on the COVID advisory board. This guy, the guy that wants useless eaters to just kind of, uh, you know, fade into the sunset. <laughs> Wonderful. So what do we see here? Well, all of this is rebellion against God. Murdering babies, the Bible's very clear that children are a blessing to have as many as you can, that they're special in the eyes of God. Murdering the elderly, the Bible shows us the importance of wisdom, the wisdom of those that have gained it over many years, that the old are instrumental in the teaching of the young. Think of the basic progression we all go through growing up. Our parents are smart, our parents have the IQ of a stump, our parents are wise. And then murdering those that can't contribute at least as much as they consume. You know, the disabled. They're in view here. The Bible tells us that all people are image bearers of God and therefore not to be mistreated. The path we're quickly heading down is pure, unadulterated evil. As for the current economic situation, the Bible is very clear that we are to be neither a borrower nor a lender, that the borrower is slave to the lender. And I think that if you've ever had a loan, you know that feeling. No, I have not finished my Dave Ramsey baby steps. I'm down to the mortgage, though, and I'm not saying I'll never take a loan again. It's possible. But look at our world. Look at the debt. Personal, consumer, student loan, mortgage. We're a buy-now-pay-later society, and that's what our government is, too, just on a massive scale that none of us can realistically comprehend. So unless you're a saint, and you're not, we've all been caught in a lie. And we've all, at least once in our lives, thought if we just stick with that lie, it'll all work out in the end. So we lie to cover the lie and lie to cover those lies. And eventually we come to a point where our fanciful tale becomes uh, inconsistent with reality. As my favorite TV judge, Judge Judy, says, 
if you tell the truth, you don't have to have a good memory. Well, this is literally the same kind of death spiral our economy is in. Everything is being propped up with funny money. Everything is over-leveraged. The government is spending out of control. The percentage of takers are starting to eclipse the percentage of makers. And no, I'm not advocating for a purge. And to cover our debts, to cover their tracks, our government just turns the dial up on the printing presses. As long as we have whatever material those bills are made of, and as long as we have that special ink, we're good. And coming soon, mandatory digital currency. If that becomes a reality, all bets are off. It'll be a straight downward plunge into hopefully only second world status. There's no easy solution for this. We can't just rip the band-aid off. But pulling it off slowly won't fix it either. I don't know when, but harder times are coming. The best thing we could do is have a government that cared more about humanity than they do about their own personal wealth and elected position. Admitting that we're in trouble cutting every last drop of extraneous spending, slicing government employees to the bare minimum, shutting down departments, right-sizing taxes, right-sizing interest rates, boosting energy production, becoming a net exporter of everything possible rather than a net importer, and many, many other changes. That's how we claw our way back. And this would be over generations, not years. What we're seeing is government in a sinful world. I don't have a problem with the concept of taxes. That's what the tithe was in the Old Testament. It was basically taxes. I just want them used only for what they should be used for, not homosexual monkeys or turtle tunnels. To take money from the people and misuse it is theft. We're seeing a government that's lying to its people over and over on both sides of the aisle. Although one more than the other, I'll let you decide. No, I won't. It's the left. They're the bigger liars. Easily debunkable. We're seeing violation of the wisdom of not being a borrower, and we're seeing on a grand scale why this is found in the wisdom literature. We're seeing the devaluation of human life, no longer image bearers of God, rather eaters or takers. We're basically running almost as fast as we can in the opposite direction of anything the Bible has to tell us. Now, this is where many people pull out one of their favorite Bible verses. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. No, that's not a promise to us in the United States or at this time in history. That verse has a context and that context matters. Stop using it wrong. That was for the Israelites. This was stated by God to Solomon after the temple was finished, and God told him when, not if, when he causes drought, famine, pestilence among them, if they do this, if they humble themselves, call on God, repent, he will forgive them. He's a forgiving God. He will restore them to fellowship as symbolized by the land being healed. God's plan for our country may not be this. It could be if we all, all of us, 350 million of us strong, fell on our faces and repented to God, maybe he would restore us but maybe not. The United States is not in the Bible. We're not given this promise and we can't hijack it when we see things going poorly. But we don't need to bother ourselves with hypotheticals, do we? I'm not really envisioning a country coming back to God like that. That said, the principles, the application of that oft misused verse does apply to us personally. We each need to humble ourselves to God, to repent, and to recognize that God is sovereign. Our job is to do our job, Pray, work, serve, love God, love others, go and make disciples. We're also to provide, to work, to be wise. We have no guarantee of prosperity or restoration as a nation. We have no guarantee of prosperity as an individual. But we do have the promise of salvation, sanctification, and when we do occasionally sin all of the time, we have the promise of restoration. If we humble ourselves, seek God's face, and turn from our wicked ways, I don't have a solution, and the Bible doesn't have a solution that our government appears to be willing to accept for the insanity we're seeing. 
and going to be seeing more of soon. But we do have the promises of God in his word to us personally. As times get harder, and they will, don't lose sight of the true truth. Always rest on, build on, fall back on the solid rock. That will never change. It will never move, and it will never disappoint. And with that, we've reached the end of this episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. If you've made it this far, the odds are you liked what you heard. I'd greatly appreciate a like, a comment, and a review if you're so inclined. As you likely already know, it all helps with the algorithms. Don't forget to subscribe so you can be notified whenever a new episode drops. And finally, if you found this podcast useful or entertaining, share it with your friends, your enemies, your in-laws, your outlaws. If you want to reach me, you can do so at lcpodcast at outlook.com or increasingly I'll be using at lcpodcast on Getter. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. But Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless. Thank you.